I would draw your attention first to just a short video. Freedom. It's something we cherish in this country. The idea of a free society is embedded into the very core of our nation. Many have died defending it, and many have fought diligently to preserve it. So where has it gone? We've become a nation bound by division, chained by hatred, and consumed by selfishness. There's an epidemic of violence, poverty, brokenness. Does this look like freedom? The Bible tells us we're called to be free, but it also says to use that freedom to serve one another humbly, in love. Maybe that's what we're missing in America. Today, we celebrate Independence Day. Perhaps it's time we recognize that true independence is found only in a lasting dependence on God. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. July 4th is tomorrow. Today is July 3rd, July 4th. Independence Day, the day we celebrate as a nation together. And we look up, don't we? We look up at the fireworks and we are impressed. Ooh, wow. But a thought crossed my mind as I prepared for this message today. I thought I've, I've maybe never thought about before regarding Independence Day. We look up and we see the fireworks. What does God see on the 4th of July? What does God see from his vantage point? Our vantage point is down here looking up. What does God see from his vantage point as we celebrate Independence Day? We celebrate our Independence Day as a country, and we're celebrating, well, our independence. From what, though, right? We're celebrating our independence from Great Britain in July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence. We're celebrating that we no longer recognize Great Britain's authority over us. And this authority that Great Britain had over us was more than just political power, wasn't it? The King of Britain also had the power to tax us, to make laws for us, and even the power to tell us who we were supposed to worship and how we were supposed to worship. The King of Britain wanted everybody to worship in the Anglican Church, the Church of England. We rebelled against the authority that was the King of England. That is how July 4th began, with a celebration of freedom from the authority of England. So what are we celebrating today on July 4th? Freedom? Liberty? Autonomy? These words might mean something different today than they meant July 4th, 1776. 
that good? Is that bad? You know, as a country, I'm not sure that we can even define together what good or bad even means. As a country today, we're having quite a bit of trouble with the definition of a lot of different words, aren't we? Words that you would think should be fairly simple to define. Good, bad, man, woman, marriage, life, rights, freedom, liberty. I might make an argument that as a country, we would have a bit of trouble giving a definition for those words that most of us would agree upon. All of the definitions of those words simply aren't accepted by everybody. The very fabric of our society seems to be under attack, even to the point that we can't seem to agree on what words even mean. Again, I wonder, what does God see when he views our Independence Day celebrations? I wonder, is God pleased with our nation, with our people? <coughs> our definitions. I think he may not be particularly pleased. I believe that the United States of America has taken the words freedom and liberty and twisted them into an utterly selfish caricature of what they used to be. Freedom has come to mean only individual, personal Liberty, it seems to me, has come to mean that I have rights and my rights matter more than anybody else's. This new understanding of freedom and liberty has created something that should be completely unsurprising. It has created division. Selfishness always leads to division. Selfishness is the destroyer of unity. And we, I believe, have made the words freedom and liberty synonymous with selfishness. That's a problem. So what has changed in our nation that has caused this upheaval? probably give you an answer to that. July 4th is Independence Day, but I believe that the people of our nation are increasingly declaring their independence from more than just the British king. I believe that people are increasingly declaring their independence from the king of kings. It's difficult to watch this happen, isn't it? But what can we do about it? Is there anything we can do about it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I believe that there is a lot we can do about this. It is up to us, followers of Jesus Christ, to do what only we can do for this nation. 
It's interesting that a little passage of scripture during our worship time together that Lorinda read, I didn't tell her to read that. That's something that the worship team chose. It just happens to fit in with what I'm going to say. That's a coincidence. Do you know what we can do, followers of Jesus Christ? We can be salt and light in a dark and flavorless world. Salt and light. Salt does not work when it stays in the salt shaker. I've said that before. It has to be sprinkled out. It has to get into the dish. So I am not a fan, maybe fan's the wrong word, I don't think that we are called as a church to withdraw from society. Do you understand that? Our job is to not try to stick more salt in the salt shaker. Our job is to get out there and flavor the world. To get out there and be in the midst of this food that is so bland, so lost. And light, well, you know the song. What is light supposed to do? You don't put it under a bowl, right? You, you, you let it shine to illuminate the darkness. Our job, I do not believe, is to step back and, and hide and just hold on until Jesus comes. I believe we are to do the opposite. We are to get out there. Flavor society. Illuminate the world. You know, we've been learning from the Apostle Paul how to live as joyful people in a fallen world. I, I kind of like that as a description for the entire book of Philippians. As we've been going through Philippians, I've been trying to figure out what, what is, what is, the, what is the, the phrase that would like sum up Philippians. I think, I think that's it. Joyful people in a fallen world. I thought you would like that one, but you kind of just said it. Philippians, we've been searching for joy. We've been on a mission to find joy. And this mission, it's kind of like, well, it's a mission I've been on, but you just kind of get to come along. Because I needed to restore the joy of my salvation again. All this stuff with COVID and all this division, I have felt increasingly down. Increasingly, like I've lost my joy. And so, I have been in Philippians trying to have my joy restored, and I hope it's been helpful to you, but I've been trying to find it myself. So, I want to remind you so far in Philippians, we've found eight things, eight places, or eight understandings of joy. I want to remind you again as we've gone through Philippians, here's what we found. Number one, joy begins with humility. Now, do you understand right there what I just said about Independence Day and how we have, we have lifted up as an idol our own selfishness, our own desires as the most important things, our own pursuit of happiness as an inalienable right, as the most important thing, our pursuit of happiness. Is happiness the most important thing? Come on, y'all. Is this what we're going to... You look up and you see the fireworks tomorrow. What are you thinking? Oh, the pursuit of happiness. I just want to get happiness. And think about God's perspective now. You want joy? If you want joy, then you must understand that pursuit of happiness is not the goal. Joy is found, and it starts with, it begins with humility. Number two. Christians partnering together brings joy. 
That would be unity. What does selfishness bring? The opposite of unity. It brings division. Selfishness, needing to have my own way. That brings division. Do you understand? That's the opposite of joy. The gospel advancing brings joy. The good news moving forward brings joy. That's the salt and the light going out. And joy and unity go together. I've just said that, right? Number five, suffering for Christ brings joy. If your suffering is not bringing joy, I would ask you, what are you suffering for? <laughs> Number six, joy is found when we put others above ourselves. Again, I have seen very few people put others above themselves in the past three years. Well, actually, maybe for my whole life. I think it's possible. Number seven, joy is found when we daily submit our lives to Jesus and become light bringers. And then number eight, the one we learned last week, rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard. Rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard. And of course, I told you what rejoicing is. Rejoicing is the verb form of joy. Rejoicing is joy in action. That's what it is. And now we're going to move forward today. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word again today, as we go to Philippians chapter 3, it's with a sense of urgency. An urgency to understand what we can do to salvage our nation that has, that has spiraled into selfishness and depravity. God, we are looking to you because you are the source of joy. You are the source of life. And your word is inspired, and now we ask that we would be inspired to interpret it. Holy Spirit, speak. We are listening. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, we're going to read that. Because today we're going to continue in the letter of the Philippians. The letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, and of course, this letter is also for us. And I think Paul has some important stuff for us in the section we're reading today, specifically for the moment we are in today as a nation. Last week in the first half of chapter 3, we learned that salvation is found in Jesus alone. It's not Jesus plus anything. Not Jesus plus baptism, not Jesus plus communion, not Jesus plus anything. Salvation is found in Jesus and not Jesus plus our good works. It is in Jesus. That's where salvation is found. We learned that last week, but we also learned that all the accomplishments of life, all of the things that we would normally take pride in, are rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. And of course, go back to last week if you'd like the Greek translation of skubala, rubbish. Dr. Dwyer told us, didn't he, what scubala means. Yeah, you're back for shaking your hand. There is nothing in life that is worth anything compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Compared to knowing the power of his resurrection. Compared to the hope we have of eternal life through that power. 
And a saving faith in Jesus is a settled trust in Him that leads to obedience. Now, starting in chapter 3, verse 12. <coughs> Pardon me. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if at some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers. And take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now I'll say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. The word of the Lord. This short passage contains so much incredible information about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a crazy world that I barely know where to even begin my discussion. And it's just like packed. It's like packed. There's so much good stuff. So I, I'm going to break this down a little bit, and I'm kind of excited to do this, but I'm not sure you're super excited. I don't know. Maybe you are. But like, this passage of Scripture is like, wah! Like, it's, 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 it's incredible. So here we go. Let's just look at the first three verses. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Alright, I've said this before, and some of you that are new to our church, you may be haven't heard me say this a lot, but I'm going to try to go into it just a bit. We are a holiness church. So I've said that before, and some of you are like, well, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Well, holy means to be set apart. We are set apart for God. Our lives are supposed to be set apart for God. Now, here's what our church believes. You ready for this? Here we go. We believe that Christians can and do have victory over sin. That was really good. Very muffled amen. I need more. I need more from you. This is like, come on. Okay, I'm going to try that again. And now it's going to be all forced and sound weird because I'm okay with that. Okay? We believe that Christians can and do have victory over sin. Amen. Amen. 
that I was forced to love. Now this victory, I want to be very clear about this. This victory is not because we are strong. Okay? It's because we believe that Jesus has gained victory over sin and even death by his death and resurrection. Moreover, we believe that Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to give us the power we need to overcome sin in our lives. Did you catch that? So we believe that we can have victory over sin, but not because we are strong. We can do it because Jesus is strong, and because he has given us his Holy Spirit to give us the power to do this. On our own, we can't do it. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. And hey, this is good news. Like, it, there's most people when they think of good news, they think of, oh, I'm saved from my sin and I get to go to heaven. Yes, that's true. But it's only the start. Yes, we, we have salvation in Jesus Christ, but we also have sanctification in that we have power to live victoriously over sin in our life. If that's not something to get excited about, I don't know what you get excited about. You can have power and victory over sin. I mean, some of you are even smiling a little bit right now. It's crazy. It's crazy. Followers of Jesus really can live holy lives. Now, I want to be clear. I want to be clear about something. All humans sin. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have... Oh, say amen to that one? There's, yes, we're all sinners. Yes, we are all sinners. I appreciate the amen, though, Dave. Keep them coming. I like it. Keep them coming. So, all that sin and falls short of the glory of God. Okay, so we all deserve punishment. All of us do. However, some Christians live like that's the experience that Christians are, are having all the time. That is a statement that says all have sinned. In the beginning of Romans, Paul is setting up the whole grand stage of what the gospel is. This is the beginning where he's talking about humans have, we have fallen from our connection with God. All humans have. But that's not where it stops. That's where it begins. So look at, look at Romans 6, just a little later in the argument in Romans. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You can't, you can't just stop at Romans 3.23. Yes, all humans have sinned. But the solution to sin and death has been given to us. By no means. If you are a believer in Christ, you have died to sin. And in, in another place, Paul says that we are a new creation. The old is gone. We can Live in victory. Do you see it? We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We have the victory through Jesus' death and resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, God has called us to be holy, to be set apart for Him. 1 Peter 1, 15-16 Because just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I'm holy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it'd be interesting if, if any, anywhere in the New Testament you could find a statement like this, right? 
Go and sin just a little bit. Right? Go and be mostly holy. Be mostly holy because God is mostly holy. Right? A little bit of sin's okay. You can't help it anymore. False! Help me out! We are called to be holy and we have access to the power of God to do it! In many places throughout the Bible, we are encouraged and even commanded to live a life free of sin. I mean, I just quoted this, John 8, when Jesus talked to the woman, right? He didn't say, go and sin as little as you can, but I know you're going to. Right? He doesn't say that. He says, go and sin no more. Well, I guess Jesus was kidding. I guess all of the places where we are, where we encouraged, exhorted, and commanded to not sin, I guess he was just over-exaggerating what we can actually do, don't you think? False! False! And we have victory! This huge segment of Christianity has just given up their victory with this idea that sin's inevitable. Sin is not inevitable. Amen. Thank you. This is good. This is like amen-worthy stuff, okay? This is who we are. Followers of Christ. This is who we are. But now, after that super exciting little sermonette about holiness, okay, what are we supposed to make with what Paul said in Philippians? Because look what he said. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold for me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Did not even the Apostle Paul have victory over sin? Because isn't that what that says? Doesn't that look like like Paul hadn't made it yet? So how prideful would a pastor in a holiness church have to be to stand up in front of you and say, well, I've arrived even though the Apostle Paul hasn't. Now, this is the biggest, one of the biggest things that people that don't believe that victory over sin is possible in this life will point to. They'll point to this passage of Scripture. Not even the Apostle Paul was holy, so why do you expect us to do it? That's impossible. We'll never have victory over sin in this life. That's only for the life to come. That's the argument. So, I would like to try to help us understand what's happening in this passage. And I, I think it's exciting. Alright? Here we go. The Apostle Paul, arguably the most respected, most spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ who has ever lived, is making the claim that he has not achieved perfection. Therefore, it is argued, nobody can make it. Right? That's the argument. That it's all it's all just inevitable you're gonna sin. We're all just gonna sin. That's just the way it is. You know, it's interesting to me because when you talk that way. It's like you're saying that sin is inevitable. Like it's not a choice anymore. Like it's going to happen. I disagree. I disagree. But how do we make sense of this thing? Does it mean, does what Paul says here, does that mean that we really don't have victory over sin after all? Does this mean that we will just keep sinning all the time until we die and we can't help it until we get to heaven? What does it mean? Let's figure it out. By simply looking at the passage. 
Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now just think about it. What is the all this? Not that I have already obtained all this. What is Paul referring to? Because to understand what he's saying, you've got to know what the all this is that he's talking about. Well, lucky for us, in the letter to Philippians, Paul just said it. He just said what the all this is. It's the two verses that come before this. So verses 10 and 11. Look at verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Well, can I suggest to you that those two verses help us make sense of the all this in the next verse? In the next verse, the very next verse is the one we just read, right? Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this. You see, Paul has definitely, most definitely, not obtained all this, since all this includes sharing in Christ's death and resurrection from the dead. Did you get that? Why? Because Paul wasn't dead yet when he was writing this letter. He hadn't been resurrected yet. So he had not obtained that yet, had he? I mean, right? He literally has not shared in this with Jesus yet because he was still alive. Moreover, what Paul, when Paul says next that he hasn't been made perfect, this is exactly right in that Paul had not yet received his resurrection body. Do you see? Of course Paul hadn't been made perfect. Gil Stafford, right? He talked about justification, sanctification, and glorification. Paul is saying he had not been glorified yet. And he's absolutely right. Glorification is that moment when we are resurrected from the dead and we receive resurrection bodies. That's glorification. So I absolutely agree. Paul has not received glorification yet. Paul wrote extensively about the resurrection and specifically our resurrection bodies at the end of his first letter to the church in Corinth. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, he was the first to receive a resurrection body that we are also promised. But I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure we have not received our resurrection bodies yet. You know how I know that? Because when I wiped out on my bike three weeks ago, it hurt. And I got like five different injuries and some kind of tick disease. It was like, I can't wait for my glorification resurrection body when I can wipe off a mountain bike and be fine. So Mike in heaven, we're going to Cayuga. Okay? And I'm going to wipe out and it's going to be great. Alright? But until then, the jury's still out. I'm going to back. 
Our, glorific, our glorified resurrection bodies are going to be different than these. Why? Because we're not going to be affected by sin anymore at that time. Amen. I'm ready for that. Do you know that we can pray for Jesus to come back so we can be done with this? Anybody ready to be done with this? Like, all of them. Like, I'm ready. I'm ready. Jesus, Lord Jesus, come back. We're ready. Well, and as soon as I say that, you know what you think of, don't you? All of the people you know that don't know Jesus. Right? So, here we are. Back at Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So Paul is correct. He has not yet received his perfect resurrection body, but he is heading toward this hope. That is what we Christians are all doing. We are heading toward the hope of eternal life in Jesus. What brought death into creation? Sin. Sin brought death into creation. There was no death before sin. So if we receive resurrection bodies that have not been touched by sin, those bodies will live forever. The reason they live forever is because they are not going to be touched by sin. They're not going to be subject to the effect of sin, the effect that sin has had on all creation. They will be perfect. Our resurrection bodies will be perfect. They will be, let me say that a different way, a way that kind of means the same thing. They will be complete. They will be not lacking anything. You see how perfect and complete and not lacking anything are kind of the same thing? Mm. So in this verse, Paul isn't saying that his life is in a perpetual and uncontrollable sin fest. <laughs> that is not what Paul is saying. He is saying that he has not yet received his hope for reward from Jesus, which is a perfect resurrection body. He's saying we are still, he's still living in a world that is marred by the effects of sin. But he's not saying that he is constantly sinning because he can't help it. Do you see that? While we are still on earth, we are surrounded by the effects of sin. Disease, grief, pain, suffering, evil, hunger, aging, and even death. All of those are the effects of sin. And we are swimming in it. It is with us always. It's why cars rust. It's why things break. It's why we break. It's why we age. It is sin that does that. It is, it is the effect of sin that does all of those things. And all of these are still around us. Even though we have victory in Christ, we are still living in the effects of sin all around us. Now there's one thing I've got to say here, because lots of people get this misunderstood, and it's really important. Okay? Temptation is not sin. You see, if you think that being tempted is a sin, then I would agree with you it's impossible to, be, to have victory over sin. You see, we live in a world where temptations are all around us because the effects of sin are everywhere. So you are going to constantly, and I am going to constantly, be tempted to sin. 
the thing I'm saying and that Jesus is saying is we can have victory over temptation. Jesus says we can take every thought captive to Christ. Amen. We have the power through the Holy Spirit to have victory over sin, but that does not mean we won't be tempted. Do you see the difference? Jesus was tempted, but was without sin. Hebrews. So temptation will be with us because we live in a fallen creation. But we have victory over that temptation. We can stop the temptation from becoming sin. Temptation itself is not sin. That's really important. If you don't understand that, you will say holiness and holiness churches are done. Right? Because you think, well, there's no way that you can have victory over temptation. You can have victory over sin by stopping the temptation before it becomes just like Jesus did. And we have access to Jesus' resurrection power. We have access to that power through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, we can overcome temptation and say no to sin. But we're not going to escape temptation on this earth until we are glorified. When we are glorified, when we get our resurrection bodies... There won't be even temptation anymore because the effects of sin will be gone. I am excited about that. Wouldn't that be great? You just you can just let your guard down and just worship God. I mean, you just you can just say, I, I, I just I mean, we don't know exactly what heaven's going to be like, but I think a huge part of heaven that we don't ever talk about is that it will be a place where there's no temptation, so that we don't even have to worry about it. We don't have to we don't have to fight against it. We don't have to always keep our guard up. We won't have to like always put our armor on because it won't, we won't be swimming in the effects of sin. Wow, that's heaven, guys. Heaven is so much bigger and greater than what we usually think. It's like, well, I'm going to be a disembodied spirit floating around in the clouds with somebody waving up like a no. That's not what heaven is. Heaven's going to be a place with a real body. A resurrection body that's been perfected and that is no longer marred by the effects of sin. Yes! Not even temptation will be there. Man, I am ready for that. I am excited by that. I'm like, let's get this done with. So back to Paul. What is our job then, knowing that we can have victory over sin, but knowing that we still live with the effects of sin around us? What's our job? Go back now, look again. Not that we have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Our job is to keep putting one foot in front of the other. That's our job. Keep moving forward. If you don't like that one, then some of you will like this one better. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Come on, buddy, you know? Followers of Christ, our job is to keep our eyes on Jesus, right? And keep going that way. That's the job. Keep moving forward. One step in front of the other. One step at a time. One day at a time. 
One moment at a time. And that is how you live a holy life. Because in every moment, you are presented with a decision. Do you choose yourself or do you choose God? What I'm saying is that we have the power of God inside us in every moment to choose God. That's what Christians can do. Non-Christians cannot do that. They, they do not have the power to consistently choose Jesus in every moment. Christians do have that power. And think about it, if you think that that's not true, then what's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? You understand? Holiness just makes sense. We are, we are making decisions in every moment of our life to either go this way or to go that way. Those are the two choices. And there's no middle choice where you go kind of this way but kind of that way. And we have the power to do it. That's what's great about being a Christian. We have the power to keep moving toward Jesus. That's what we have the power to do. And then verse 15. I love verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make near you. Now I took two semesters of Greek in seminary. I remember very well. I'm just serious. They were, they were summer intensive classes besides, so I've lost like 99.9% of everything I learned. Something about participles, but I don't remember what it is. But I know enough Greek to be able to look at a commentary and see something interesting. I know enough Greek to look at the Greek New Testament and see parallels that you can't see in English. So here you go. In verse 12, when Paul says he has not been made perfect, okay, the Greek word for perfect is tetliomai, or tetliomai, I pronounced it wrong, tetliomai, T-E-T-L-E-I-O-M-A-I, tetliomai. Now, that means nothing to you, and that's okay, except in verse 15, you see that word mature? You know what the word mature is in Greek? Tetliomai. The word perfect in verse 12 and the word mature in verse 15 are the same root word. Remember I said perfect, complete, not lacking anything? Those are all different ways you can define the word tetheomai. I just didn't tell you the last one that you can also define it as. Mature. The word translated in English as perfect can also be translated as mature. And if you look in verse 12 and verse 15, in verse 12 the word is perfect, and in verse 15 it's mature. Now I need to, you guys need to get this. Because in verse 12, Paul says, I am not perfect. I am not, I am not teleomai. And then in verse 15 he says, all of us who are mature. In verse 12 he says, I'm not perfect. And in verse 15 he says, but I am part of the group that's mature. And it's the same word. In Greek. Don't see it in English. Don't see it in English. Come on, holiness people. This is exciting. Do you understand what Paul is saying? I have not achieved glorification, but I am. Mature. You guys, maturity in Christ is possible before heaven. 
Maturity. Completeness. Not lacking anything. Might I be so bold as to say? Perfection. Now, perfection is a word that brings with it a lot of connotations in English that don't fit, right? So we don't use perfection here. But the idea of completeness, of not lacking anything, can I suggest the idea of victory over sin exists in this life? Because Paul and others have attained it. They've attained maturity in Christ. And again, not because they're good, but because they have access to the Holy Spirit. Man, this is good stuff. Man. Paul says he isn't perfect, but then he follows the, this up by saying that he and other people are mature. That's so good. It's so good. Are you kidding me? I'm out of time. Oh, man. Oh, I get excited by this, though. Are you guys excited? I mean... You get, to, you get to understand. Do you understand that we can have victory over sin? Do not let anybody tell you that you're just going to sin. Don't let anybody tell you that it's inevitable. You can do it. Because you've got access to the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It is possible to be mature. It's now the end of the passage and then we're done. Philippians... 317-41 Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. You see how this is all in here? Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Well, that's a pretty prideful thing to say of Paul, isn't it? Follow my example. Wow. Only someone who's mature and complete would be willing to say something like that. And of course we know, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul is making a case to say, I follow Christ. I have victory over sin. I am mature. You can follow my example and others who are in that same example. And then, verses 18 through 19, I think is just a description of the United States of America. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. I, I, the idea of their God being their stomach, you guys, do you see that everywhere? Everybody around us, their God is their stomach. They're just trying to satisfy their hunger. But they're doing it with everything except what will actually satisfy their hunger. We have work to do because we need to be 
salt and light, telling people about this incredible, this incredible salvation that can come through Jesus and the victory over sin that accompanies it. You can have victory. We can get through this. This division in our nation that seems like that we can't possibly beat it. Yes, we can. But what are you talking about? We can't. Do you know Jesus Christ? Could I introduce him to you? Could I introduce you to the person of the Holy Spirit? The embodiment of the power of the resurrection lives in you. Amen. Church, it lives in you. Amen. Followers of Jesus, our primary citizenship is in heaven, not America. So can I suggest something to you tomorrow? Tomorrow, probably, you're going to look up and you're going to see fireworks going off, right? What are you looking up at? Are you looking up at the great accomplishments of the United States of America? Are you looking up at the great independence from Britain that we have attained? Are you looking up at the great personal freedom and the ability to pursue happiness that we have gotten? None of those things are bad, necessarily, in and of themselves. But I suggest that when you look up tomorrow, you don't think about the independence of America. You think instead of the dependence we have on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look up and see God. And remember that He has empowered you to be salt and light to a dark generation that has lost their way. To a generation that only worships the God of their stomach. We have the good news. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible book, this letter of Philippians that you've inspired Paul to inspire us. And now, as we think about our task to change this world for you, it seems too big, like we're not strong enough. And the answer, of course, is we're not. But you are. May this church in this place join together with churches, faithful, Bible-believing churches everywhere to become the salt and light of our communities. And as we look up tomorrow to celebrate our Independence Day, may we be reminded of our dependence on you. In Jesus' name.